Welcome to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson. Kirsten and her guests are here to help you stop struggling with your own self-acceptance and teach you how to love yourself unconditionally. Now, here's Kirsten. Welcome to GTO Freedom for Humans, where we talk about the ways in which we as humans can free ourselves from suffering by practicing unconditional love, acceptance, and compassion for ourselves. I'm Kirsten Johansson, your host. Today, we have a fascinating story of life, death, and compassion with my special guest, Steckley Lee. Hi. Hi, Steckley. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, so I'm going to read Steckley's bio. The daughter of artists, Steckley grew up surrounded by artists and creators in Central Florida. Her plan to become an artist and herbalist herself changed course during the Bush-Cheney years when civil rights violations in her home state led her to enroll in law school with the aim of becoming a human rights attorney. In law school, she joined the Progressive National Lawyers Guild, committed to protecting people over profits, collaborating with activists to resist neoliberalism and war, fighting for the rights of disabled people, queer people, and people of color. She practiced as a public defender, prisoner rights attorney, and a defense attorney for parents accused of abuse and neglect. After a near-death experience and the birth of her three children, Steckley has shifted her focus to caregiving. This has grown with her children into a multi-generational art collective called Aries Makers that uses creativity to foster community building, reciprocity, and thriving life. Steckley, I when I read that bio, I just I must say the word that emerges for me is compassion, which of course is a core theme of our show. Yes, and that's something I have definitely um, been learning and leaning into over these last few years. So tell me, um, you have such an interesting background in history. Um, You know, much of that often starts early in our lives. How, you know, can you tell us a bit about how you grew up and how you came into this, those wonderful um, pieces of your career? Sure. Um, yeah. So I grew up in a small farming town um, called Plant City, Florida, and um, my mother's family had was there for generations. They're one of the founding families of that town. And then my father was an artist who uh, moved from New York City to Plant City in the 70s as part of the Artists in the Schools program. And he was a definite outsider in Plant City, uh, being a Yankee from up north um, and being this extremely, extremely creative, open and generous person who also struggled with mental illness. Mm. And uh, so my family, my family life was always, I had this interesting push and pull of this deeply rooted Southern Christian family that I was surrounded with and cared for, I mean, that cared for me and and loved me. And then my father, who was this wildly open, creative um, being from the outside, uh, who definitely 
lived his own lived in his own way mm-hmm. um and included me in a lot of his creative pursuits he included all of us children there's four of us um in his work and in his art and so i got to have this really rich like rich childhood of just kind of opposites <laughs> Um, yeah, and was there was there tension there in those opposites? There was, there was because uh, my father was not the primary breadwinner. He was not. He didn't fit into that traditional masculine role of provider, um, or of of always being like a stable, robust person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that did create tension because we we did. My mother was an art teacher, and she was, and still is, immensely uh, supportive of me and um and loving. But she was an art teacher in, in rural Florida, so she didn't make a lot of money. And um, my father, while he worked all the time, he never made a lot of money. Um, and so the 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 rooted family of that area who were lawyers and judges and um business owners and really traditionally successful um Mm -hmm. men didn't really accept my dad as being a (laughs) um uh a valuable i think didn't 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 value him in the way that i did um and then the way I think he he was here on this earth to to exist, right? But yeah, there was definitely tension there. And yeah. so you kind of saw you grew up seeing what it looks like to forge a path that is not necessarily the easy path um, or the well worn path, but the sort of the path of truth that aligned with your dad's spirit. Definitely, definitely. And I am so grateful for that. Like he, he definitely lived as who he was and he, um, he suffered a lot. He, he, he had bipolar disorder and he also had a lot of health, chronic health problems. And he traveled a lot, um, as for his work, he was a photojournalist, but also for his, his own mental health. I think he needed to, to travel. Um, but he was really loved by the artistic community in Tampa and, mm-hmm. um, and really valued by them. And my, um, early child, during my early childhood, he and my mother and their friends, um, from Ebor, which is a, a segment, a, a section of Tampa started these things called the artists and writers balls, which were these giant celebrations of art. And, um, I got to watch that as a young child and, and the artists would all come in to our house. We we had kind of the most space because we were out in the country and they would um make these giant puppets and just tons of art <laughs> that wow. they would then take and have these giant celebrations with. And um I remember that as a child, a young child. I think when you're a young child, I think my parents were both still a little more free and they're in the way they lived and not quite as um I guess worried about how our family might be seen and um I just remember that time being yeah really like special neat time it felt none of my other friends were experiencing that and so well, I felt really special <laughs> <laughs> well I mean 
honestly, what you described sounds so special um, <laughs> and interesting that you did you did eventually see that that's not that's not what was happening in everyone else's lives in their homes. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious about something you said. You said um, your dad needed to travel for mm-hmm. his mental well-being. Can you say more about that? Sure. Um, I mean, as a child, my mom kept us really protected from his mental health struggles. And so as a, as a person living with bipolar, he would have manic, mainly it was manic, I think his manic times. And in those times he would just disappear. And, um, but my mom would tell us he was out on assignment for his photography work. And often he was, it wasn't a, uh, an untruth completely, Mm -hmm. but he would sometimes leave for an assignment and then just not come back for several weeks. And, um, and those were what my mom now, now, now I know as an adult were his, his manic periods. And so, um, I never saw those. They were, he would, he was gone from the house during those periods. And, um, he did create amazing work during those periods too, though. I mean, he was, um, he was a freelance photojournalist, but he worked for, Rolling Stones and Life and Esquire and um, Conan Nast, Traveler and kind of all the big name magazines. And wow. um, yeah, so he he did create amazing work in um, visual storytelling in those periods. But I think that's how he was able to maintain his um, his, st- his stability when he was back with us. Is having okay. those periods away. I see. I see. So they were these bursts of creativity, sometimes fueled by potentially being in a manic state, which is one of the reasons, right, that some some folks who have bipolar disorder prefer not to be medicated, right? Because they, right, right? it's, it's right. a difficult illness to have. And then also they are muted in some way um, by medication. Right. Mm-hmm. Did, did did you, are you aware of your dad ever using medication or did he really just kind of live with his illness and um, manage it did. in a way that worked for him? Well, so he did use medication before um, he came to Florida. He had a period of um, institutionalization. Mm. And um, I mean, after having this in the sixties and seventies had, he had this extremely successful photography career and was one of the most sought after photographers in New York and California. And he did covers for Al Green and the Rolling Stones and a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but coming out of that intense lifestyle, he had a a major mental health crisis and ended up institutionalized, um, for six, six or seven months and, um, was medicated at that point. And his father actually, um, helped him back to health during that time. And, um, but when he got back kind of into health, he, he then chose not to continue on medication because of the way it it did make him feel completely. Um, yeah, shut, Mm -hmm. like shut. His creativity was shut down. Exactly. Uh huh. And that was in the seventies. So I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that medicine has come further. Right. (laughs) But, um, lithium was his option then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, your, your mom sounds amazing in terms of 
her approach. Yes. My mom is somebody who I value so much more greatly now as a, that I'm a mother. And just, yeah, the way she was able to, they had a really rough relationship too that they kept hidden from us as well. But um, that she was able to just kind of hold him in love mm-hmm. and recognize the importance of our relationship with him and that that be strong and that that not be clouded by his struggles. That just, um, yeah, that was such a gift as a child to have that. Um, I think it was a, a great, um, you know, it was really hard for my mom. And um, she's immensely strong. <laughs> a person um having lived through that yes and it sounds you know the way you describe that is so beautiful because ultimately it's the having compassion for you know the vulnerabilities um the struggles the suffering of another person even when that is really impacting you i mean that's impacting Mm -hmm. your life and your home and your children. And so as you talk about her holding him in love mm-hmm. um, and, and in, in many ways, it sounds like kind of creating um, a shelter for you and your siblings so that mm-hmm. you weren't um, as directly impacted as you might've otherwise been. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. We never, I never felt unsafe or, um, you know, at risk of not having my needs met or anything. And, and she really, she and her her parents as well really did that for us. It's wonderful. So coming up in this, just this rich artistic environment, um, you actually ended up choosing law um, as a career. Can you talk about how that came to be? Sure. Yes. I am. Um... So as a child, like my first dream was to be a ballerina and, um, and then to be a, an herbalist or a natural medicine doctor of some sort. And that was kind of my plan through high school and college. I kind of rejected like becoming an artist at that point because I saw how much my family struggled with that life, um, financially and, and then that the, um, impact that has like on a relationship too. But I um I went to Clemson University and I I went I did pre med and I um ended up having the opportunity to go to Zambia for six weeks with my cousin and to work at a hospital there after I graduated from college and I was working at that hospital that would have been in, that was in the summer of two thousand while I was at the hospital I saw how hard it was to access medical care and I just I hadn't really thought about that so much. Um, as a person who had insurance and had been cared for by parents, but in Zambia, the the hospital didn't have the only medicine that had when we arrived was aspirin and sterile water. So that that kind of gave me pause at becoming a doctor, um, or pursuing that that area of work. And then I also started learning more about the American healthcare system and how broken it was. And um. I all at that time I was also dating um, a man who was my first love who was out in California and he himself struggled with mental illness and I was kind of seeing his um challenges with accessing good medical care mm-hmm. and and then so I came back home from Africa and um 
and started second guessing going to medical school. And I decided to uh, take a year off and become, or take a year off of schooling. And I became an organizer um, working on hunger and homelessness issues. And during that time, that's when the election happened where, uh, and I'm, now I'm getting dates wrong. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't remember all the dates. But in that period of time mm-hmm. um, in Florida, we had the election that where George W. Bush ended up getting appointed president. Mm-hmm. And um, and I saw kind of how the court systems were important in that. And then also how lawyers were important in um, helping people have access to the right to vote and um, the lawyers that were stepping up to challenge some of the things that enabled George Bush to become president. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started getting interested. It just kind of piqued my interest. And my experience with lawyers, I came from a family of lawyers, my mother's side of the family. Most of them were lawyers or judges, but they all did more. Some of them were very, um, they were always very giving lawyers and very involved with pub- public interest work, but they were corporate lawyers. And so that wasn't the heart of their work. And um, kind of coming out of this, like working in Africa, seeing my boyfriend struggling with mental health and then working in hunger and homelessness issues, I started thinking, oh, you know, policy is really where I can have a better impact and I can help people more. Um, I don't want to be a doctor who can only help people who can afford it. Or um, So that's when I decided to go to law school. <laughs> and it, it was a really quick decision. <laughs> I think it was... Um, one of those things where I decided to take the LSAT the day before the deadline to take it. And I took it and then I got a decent score. And then like two days before the application was due at university of Florida, so I just decided to apply and just go for it. Um, so it's a quick shift. Um, <laughs> a, a quick, sh- a quick sh- shift from pre-med to pre-law or yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> two of the, Two of like the weightiest, uh, you know, educational career paths, right? That a person right. can enter into. Right, right. That's interesting. And yeah. I, I hear this theme um, emerging that, you know, because sometimes, you know, we think about our careers um, in terms of where they're going to go, how much money we can make um, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I hear from you is you're coming at it from a very different perspective um, in terms of seeing where there's need and where there's unmet need and where there's people suffering um, due to kind of underrepresentation or um, lack of support and lack of resources. And so I kind of hear you sort of trying to prepare yourself to um, jump in and help other people. (laughs) Yes, that was something that I, I, I'd always been drawn to as a, as a child. And so I knew that, um, kind of from a young age, I would be, be working for people who were marginalized. And, um, and part of that was also my dad and, um, and my, my grandmother who, um, in our family, community service and community engagement was really, really important. And, um, I was surrounded by people who, who were always cognizant of the needs of others. And, um, Yes, that was super important to me, the young person. The, yeah, I mean, I just hear so many wonderful things that happened in your childhood in terms of examples and modeling. And it wasn't that, you know, everything is perfect and everybody is healthy and all that stuff. There really was a mix of, you know, 
um, people who were struggling and Mm -hmm. tons of art. And then you had all the lawyers on the other side. It's, it's, was there ever a part of you during the earlier years that thought about being an artist or did you always kind of know that you were at least initially going to do something like law or, or, um, medical? Um, so as a, as a young child, I loved art. And I, I think that, you know, I think back to my youngest days of, um, when you say what you want to be when you grow up, I wanted to be a dancer. And, um, and that was, dance was definitely a really important part of my childhood. And um, I went to this little dance studio called Imagination Station and took every single dance class they offered and, and just loved it. And um, my dad used to call me twiddle toes. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I also loved to write, I would write poetry as a, as a child. And um, I mean, in our household, it was art was like breathing, it was everywhere. And so I never really had to think about Making, I remember being in art class in school and just being frustrated by it because it was contained Uh, and like structured, right? Instructions were exactly (laughs) instructions were given to us, and I was like, I don't want to do this. Even though I was a a huge rule follower, it it always bothered me. And and um, but yeah, my earliest dreams were were definitely of being a dancer. I think it was on age fourteen. It was when it was at that point when you're when you're a dancer, or you have to kind of make the decision: are you going to really go in? to it or are you gonna um start backing out and I was dancing point at that point and um my parents I think it was also becoming very expensive mm-hmm. <laughs> and um they couldn't really afford it um but they were also worried about my feet becoming yep. injured and um and so they had me stop dancing at that point and um I remember it feeling very practical and not feeling or not allowing myself to feel any sadness over it. Now I think there probably was a good deal of sadness because I really loved dancing. Um, but yeah, I moved on from there and that's kind of where I got into that track of, that's also when high school started and I just got into that track of, I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to make the best grades I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the things I can do to build up my resume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, that's an, that is an interesting pivot, mm-hmm. um, to go from being a ballerina or a ballet yeah. dancer, which is, I mean, one of the most, I don't know, that seems like one of the most rigorous forms of dancing that, uh-huh. that there is, um, to pivot to thinking about, you know, how to, how to build your resume. Right. Right. And I was, um, I was also, I did clog uh, clog dancing or clogging which is an mm-hmm. Appalachian style dancing and um yeah it was this definite pivot and it, it happened around that time where I went through puberty as well and all the body changes and kind of that pressure of being a woman in a certain type of body mm-hmm. um all of it kind of bubbled together at the same time and um I think having I actually ended up developing an eating disorder in that time too and I think having um I also, my, I went from going to this kind of diverse local public school to a really, um, white, small evangelical Christian school, Mm. um, in that same period of time, once I started middle school, I think all of that, like having come from this like kind of freedom where like we had, we were in this really small community. It was rich. It was, there was this push and pull, but 
our um, family was kind of, we were known in town and we were seen as this creative force and it was, it was okay to this. We went to this school in this other town that was extremely strict, evangelical, oppressive. All of that happened at the same time and then pulling out a dance. And so I think just like throwing myself into schoolwork, um, leadership, anything I could do to like, actually, I, I remember having this like blinders on to getting, getting out of there. I wanted to get out of that, um, confined atmosphere where I was, mm-hmm. where I now found myself. Wow. Well, we're, um, we're coming up on a break. I think this is a great time to take a break and, right. um, we are talking about uh, life, death, and compassion with my guest, Steckley Lee. And after the break, we will continue with this fascinating story. You're listening to GTO, Freedom for Humans, and we will be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at GiraffeTangoOctopus.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten, your host. We, we're speaking with um, Steckley Lee about life death and compassion you can find Stuckley at Aries Makers on Instagram and you can also find Stuckley's dad's work on Instagram at the Great Painted Cave so Stuckley there you are now in law school right so I um I started law school uh, about a year after September 11th happened and uh, all the I was, I I went to the University of Florida in Gainesville and it was such an exciting time to be in law school and be in that environment. I actually started a program that was a joint law and anthropology program. And, um, because I was really thinking at that point, I would be 
doing more policy work and I wanted to understand how, how the law was created and, um, you know, who, who got to have voice in those, in those documents and things like that. And so my first year of law school, I, it was much to my surprise, there was extreme racism on campus and I hadn't thought a whole lot about race and, um, and racism, you know, thought we were all over that at that point. And, um, <laughs> um, but we're, we're still far from over it, aren't we? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, but there were the, the woman who was the top of our class, the top of the top student in the law school that year I started my, my one L year was a black woman and somebody put up caricatures of her all over the law oh. school. And then wow. they also wrote, um, the N word. In, ba- in the bathrooms and say, and it said they don't belong in the law school. Wow. So, um, yeah, it was shocking. And a small group of students, um, who are one L's with me, um, we, we, we formed a group called Students for Diversity at Levin College of Law. And, and this group of people was, um, came to be some of my greatest teachers. And one of them was Bethany Stevens, Stevens, who is a disability rights activist. And, um, she wasn't, art and law student at that time. And then another woman, Patrice Patrine, who was older than all of us. She had raised a family and she was um, a paraplegic. Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, she was a paraplegic. Um, Bethany had brittle bone syndrome. So she used a wheelchair and was very fragile bodied. Patrice was a black woman, paraplegic. And, um, and then this married couple who were Puerto Rican, Jaminette and Felix, my friend, Cody, who, who's a white guy. Um, we, it formed this group and we also got involved with this organization called the National Lawyers Guild, which is still in existence. It's one of the first progressive, um, bar associations and they do a lot of work in support of activists across the world and prisoner rights. And we all joined the National Lawyers Guild and then we all started organizing on campus to make it a safe and welcoming space for everybody. In that time, it was also when the U.S. in response to 9-11 um, was beginning these wars. So I got involved with the anti-war movement and um, and also with the movement against um, the free trade area of the Americas and um, neoliberalism. And um, so while like law school is typically this time of intense study that's very kind of traditional and conservative, I... I still was able to be part of that kind of rich community um, that was different, like I had as a child. And um, it was a really exciting time. I um, I didn't focus so much on my studies. I um, I did well, but I was so drawn to being able to support these movements and do this more movement work. That's really where my my focus was. And um, I. In doing that, I met my husband, my now husband. Um, he was, he's from Iran and he grew up, um, he grew up in Iran. He came to the U.S. two, two weeks before September 11th. Wow. And, um, yeah. And, um, ended up at the University of Florida studying math. And I remember when I met him, yeah, I just was struck by his smile. And, um, I didn't know at the time that I met him, but he had been at the FTA protest, which was the Free Trade of the America protest, which, um, I was 
really involved with the legal collective that helped the activists during that protest. And that's a whole other story, but it was a, a protest that turned really violent um, because of the police actions. And there were a lot of people injured and arrested. And we ended up forming this legal collective and we were able to get all of the criminal charges dropped and won civil lawsuits. It was, it was a, a really exciting, uh, successful legal collective. But he had been at the protest and, um, he came to one of the speak. We had these events afterwards in Gainesville, invited activists who had been at the protest to come to them to tell their stories and, um, to see if we could help them with legal representation or anything. And he was there and he saw me speaking. And, um, and then like a couple of weeks later, I saw him at a coffee shop and just started talking to him. Anyhow, <laughs> we were, we were married less than a year later. Um, and part of that was the time of, um, it was that time when Bush was, um, you know, locking up Muslim people for, you know, really small infractions or in the spying at the, at the mosque, um, when FBI agents were raiding mosque or infiltrating mosque. And, um, my husband had to do special registration because he was from Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was having to go check in with the FBI basically, or maybe his home, the Department of Homeland Security like every couple months to show that he wasn't a terrorist essentially. Um, so he, as our relationship was progressing, I, I continued to be really involved with this activist work. And I I found out that my phone was tapped. Um, the ACLU did a freedom of information act and, um, my phone was tapped as because of the surveillance of, of peace activists at that time. And so I, um, this was probably like six months into our relationship. I, I said, you know, if we're going to be getting more serious, we should just get married because I don't want my activism to put you at risk. And, um, and so we did, we just got married. <laughs> Luckily it's worked out. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, my goodness, I'm, I'm listening to your story and it, the, the amount of energy. Like it's, it's almost like listening to the story of three people, the <laughs> amount of sort of energy that it must have taken to do all of these things that you're doing, all the activism and the law school and now a new husband and a new marriage. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I didn't sleep much back then. <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was still very much into that drive to, like help people make things better, completely mm-hmm. ignore anything I might be feeling. Okay. <laughs> um, because in that whole time, my father became really ill. And so in this period of intense legal activism, my father had a massive stroke and, um, you know, he was my, he called me a soul child. We were really close and he ended up having to be in a nursing home and, um, and it also came out at that time, some of the, the truth about my parents' marriage. And, um, and so their marriage, my mother did everything she needed to do for him to care for him and to get him in a safe place where he would be cared for. But she finally, um, started looking after herself some at that point, which was mm-hmm. good. Yeah. And, um, and their marriage, uh, fell apart. That's kind of the first, like, looking back, I'm like, that was one of the first times where I just was ignoring the emotions I was having uh-huh. by just throwing myself into work and helping others. And, um, 
because I was so heartbroken that my dad was in a nursing home. And, um, but as a you know person in their early twenties, I didn't have any options for caring for him at that time. Well, you, you were carrying an, an immense load as it was. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I graduated from law school and I had, because I'd been involved with all this activism work, I, I got a bunch of awards. Um, I was flown around the country talking, speaking about the work we were doing with the National Lawyers Guild and um, ended up getting uh, the opportunity to work at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York City um, as a, as a fellow there um, or a, a law student fellow. And um, that was really exciting and kind of one of those pentacle um, opportunities. And then um, when I finally graduated, I got offered a job as a public defender in, in Gainesville. And Ali, Ali was still finishing up his PhD at that time. So we needed to stay in Gainesville. And um, I hadn't, when I was in law school, I hadn't planned on actually practicing law in that kind of traditional way. But since I had to be in Gainesville for Ali to finish, um, I took the job as a public defender. It was an immense opportunity for learning how to practice law, um, but, but but heartbreaking and extremely stressful. Um, as most public defenders have, we had caseloads that were over 100 cases at a time. And um, again, I was kind of shocked by the role of racism in our systems, these legal systems. And um, I just threw my whole, like all the energy I had spent in activism, I threw into being a public defender, did trials and um, was really successful with it and, and it helped help my clients. Um, but, but I began to feel like I was just a cog in a machine. And, um, mm-hmm. and during that year, I was um, approached by um, a prisoner rights law firm who had worked with other young attorneys to become, to um, apply for these, for a fellowship called the Equal Justice Works Fellowship, which is a public interest law fellowship that's rather prestigious. And um, so they asked me if I would like to apply for this fellowship um, and come work at their office. And so I said, sure, that would be great. And um, the interesting thing was they wanted me to work on sex offender issues. having worked in the public defender's office, I hadn't had to do much work with that population, but I uh, was coming across people who were um, dealing with trying to live as a convicted sex offender in Florida. And, um, and what I was seeing is that these people were forced into homelessness and um, it was really difficult for things like probation officers to keep track of them or, um, you know, their mental health counselor to keep track of them and kind of all the services that they needed to maintain safety. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was basically impossible because the laws that Florida had um, at that time restricted where they could live. I also was kind of inspired by my, my grandmother again in that, in that time, because she used to quote this Bible verse of, um, like to whom much is given, much will be required. And then also, I don't remember it exactly, but basically it was where Jesus said something about you're you're going to be judged by how we, how you treat how you treat the least of of these. Yes. 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 Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so I was um I kind of 
embraced that and um, went forward with applying for this fellowship and um, where we were going to work on sex offender reentry and challenging these laws. And um, and I got it um, after being a public defender for about a year, transitioned over to the new office and um, to doing this work. And what's and going on with, you know, in your personal life at this at this time? Okay, so at that time, Ali um, was finishing up his, I think was finishing like his last year of his program, and then he was going to begin his dissertation defense, and I became pregnant. <laughs> so um, I hadn't planned on having children. Um, Ali and I hadn't planned on having children. We were really going to just be career people, but right after I started my fellowship, I... Um, I had a missed period and took a pregnancy test and lo and behold, I was pregnant. And I immediately um, started taking prenatal vitamins. Um, I remember not really knowing how I felt about it, but just knowing that I wanted to have as many choices as I could. <laughs> and so taking care of this new entity mm-hmm. would be, um, might be wise. So, we, I talked to Ali about it and we, we really weren't sure if we wanted to go forward with being parents or not. And I remember we had this conversation where we really, you know, Ali being a mathematician is very logical about things. And he did this pros and cons list. <laughs> um, and we went through it and um, all the things that are great about having children and all the things that can be really challenging about having children. And I remember on the challenging side were things like they could have a disability and um, they could um, bring immense stress to your marriage and um, they can make it difficult to work. And Mm -hmm. so um, being able to weigh all that fully. And at that point, I actually had scheduled to have an abortion too. Um, Just, I was like, you know, not thinking or just kind of stuck with my idea of what I was going to do. But then we sat down with that list and um, I, we both decided, no, we were going to, we wanted to go for it and have the baby. And so I, um, I didn't even have to cancel the appointment. The clinic actually ended up canceling the appointment for some reason. And, um, but I really did feel like at that point, even though the pregnancy wasn't planned, I chose to have this, this child and, um, and whatever might come with it. I, I, that was a conscious decision on my part. And I'm really grateful I had the opportunity to choose that pregnancy. Yes. Uh, yes. And yeah. um, so I just, you know, went forward in the pregnancy, um, working with sex offenders, going in and out of prisons, um, not really thinking about what it meant to be carrying a, a new life in my body. Um, you know, doing all the things like all my prenatal appointments, eating healthy, taking my vitamins, but not, not really thinking about the impact that this new life was going to have on my life. Um, my pregnancy was pretty un- uneventful. Um, but I know my mom would laugh because she would call to check in on me and I would say, yeah, I'm, I was in prison. And just, she's like, that's not what you expect to hear from your pregnant daughter. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you're doing it all. Yeah. I'm just doing it all. Just going forward. And, um, as I do, and my child was born, um, I ended up having a home birth. Gainesville has an amazing home birth community. My child was born with you know, no complications. I was really lucky. And um, I got three months of maternity leave. Um, 
I remember that period being, well, another thing that happened in that period was I had a really good friend who was pregnant with me and, um, she was, um, she was actually a big reason of why I had the home birth. So she was working on her PhD in, in, um, in education and was working on, um, equity in education and access to literacy programs in underserved communities. And, um, she was a Quaker and she's just a, a really beautiful person. And she had already had one child. We, the house we were living in, actually we had bought from her and her husband. Um, and so when I was pregnant, I kind of turned to her as like for guidance about being pregnant and, um, ended up having the same midwife as her and we would go for walks together. And, um, I gave birth first. We were, we were due on the same, um, basically on the same day or a couple of days of each other. And I gave birth first. And then uh, a few days later, she gave birth and tragically uh, she died. Um, So, Oh, I'm so that sorry. That was um, like a huge, one of those uh, completely unexpected shifts mm. of um, you kind of get those. Looking back on it, I go, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to look back on it sometimes. But she, um, because of her, I ended up with this, um, getting to know this group of women who were really um, committed to helping you as a young mother or you as a new mother. And um, we all came together to support her new baby and her husband and um, her daughter. And um, we were able to give um, her daughter breast milk. And, and so in those three months of maternity leave, this was going on as well. Um Wow, that is so, so that's so much to yeah. I mean, everything you've already described in terms of the work you're doing, and then you have this relatively brief maternity leave, and then you lose a close, close friend and are there with your new baby, but also supporting the family of your friend who's passed, which includes a new baby. It's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. And again, I think I was just kind of ignoring that fact, you know, that fact of that this is a lot and this is something I should be sitting with and, and having space for and just, um, yeah, I, I'm still close to all those people and I'm grateful for all of them. And, um, but we, yeah, in that period, Ali finished his PhD and I, um, I went back to work when Rai was, um, three months old and we had, Ali was able to be home a good bit of that time because he had just finished his PhD and was teaching like as an adjunct at the community college. So he had more freedom and flexibility. So he um, took on some of that caregiving, the early caregiving. And I went back to work and um, back to this life of being a prisoner rights attorney. And um, I did feel, began to feel that pull of like really wanting to be able to be more um, into, in the caregiving role. Mm-hmm. Um my office there had a lot of parents in it and there was a lot of support for being a parent and a practicing attorney. And so I didn't have, I felt like I was able to balance it at that point. So I was able to bring my child, my baby to work sometimes. And um, I had a really great place to pump and store milk. And um, 
yeah, I was surrounded by other people who had either young children or babies. And so there was that balanced workplace um, that really, I, I think that allowed me to continue in that, in that work at that time. Um, and then the recession hit <laughs> the, um, the 2008 recession hit. So my, my child was born in 2008 and then we all know what happened <laughs> with that. Right. With that, my, my project lost funding. <laughs> um, and so I had, I was funded for a year without question. And so around the time my, my child was turning one, I, um, my project lost all funding and, um, Florida Legal Services is funded by the interest on trust accounts. So when the recession hit, the legal services um, community in Florida was hit really badly. And um, offices, I think, went went from, you know, they lost about three quarters of their staff, basically, because of this. We um, At that point, we had bought a house in Gainesville. We had planned to stay there and make that our home. But um, I couldn't find another job. Um, I could have gone back to the public defender's office, but I knew I wouldn't have that balance for caring for my child if I was there. Um, and so I, we just decided like we had both always wanted to live in New York, um, Ali and I. And so I, I had a friend um, from Gainesville who had just, who had moved up to New York and gotten a job with legal services of New York city. And she told me about a, a newer project that they we're starting that was um, called the Brooklyn Family Defense Project. And they worked with parents accused of abuse and neglect. And so my experience having worked with sex offenders was actually really pertinent to that work. And um, so I decided I'm going to apply for this job. And um, Legal Service of New York City is the best legal or one of the very best legal services organizations in the country. And my my cousin, who was one of these um, really successful corporate lawyers from my grandmother's side, and he was much older than me, um, when I told him about the opportunity, he's like, you have to take that. You have to go for that. That's amazing. If you want to be a public interest lawyer, that's that's it. That's where you go. Um, and the other people who were being interviewed were all, were mostly like Harvard and Yale grads. So I felt really lucky to get this interview as a as a state school graduate and um remember I flew up there with Rye um and Rye stayed with one of my good friends um while I went to the interview and the interview went really well and I ended up getting offered the job and I look back on it now and I go wow like (laughs) um so Ali and I just, it was one of those things where like, I just, I just wasn't thinking about like the needs of the need of community and like the need of support and care as a person with a young child. And um, I was still, I was so much in that mindset of I can do anything and I can fix anything and just go for it. So we decided and, to move. <laughs> wow. And yeah. as we, uh, we are, we are at the end of the show and oh, I wow. just, and I just want to, uh, I just want to reassure everyone we are going to come back. We're, we're going to come back and learn more about this story because there you are now in New York mm-hmm. with a fuller plate than you've even had leading up to this with this wonderful new professional opportunity a new baby and mm. 
somewhere where you don't yet have community to support you. Exactly. Yes. 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 (laughs) We are going to hear much more about what happens um, and where death figures into this story. And you're not going to want to miss that. Um, Thank you for listening to GTO Freedom for Humans. You are the reason we do the show. You can find Steckley on Instagram at Aries Makers and her father's work on Instagram at The Great Painted Cave. You can find me at giraffetangooctopus.com. You can book a free discovery session to get started on your journey to freedom or to continue it with some support and guidance. I am here to help you. On this eve of Thanksgiving, I also would like to express my gratitude to my wonderful producer, Tacey, and everyone at Voice America who believed in me and believed in this show and the show's ability to connect with and help other people. I want to thank my my guests, Roland, Nefra, Catherine, and Steckley, who came on with open hearts and souls to tell their story and to talk about self-love and the inner critic and the idealized image and compassion for others and compassion for self and curiosity and creativity and all the things that we've squeezed in in our first four weeks on the air. And um, I also just want to wish everyone a safe, happy, healthy Thanksgiving I know that this is not always the easiest time of year and not everybody is going to be with family and not everybody has time off, but it is still a time for us to pause, hopefully, and reflect and find some gratitude, which is directly tied to happiness. And when you're finding that gratitude, don't forget about yourself. Love yourself, free yourself, be yourself, and dance your own tango. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope we have helped you learn to love yourself unconditionally and accept and celebrate everything that makes you, you. Tune in next Wednesday for another episode. And in the meantime, dance your own tango. Tango.